As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. If you enjoy the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, check out our new daily news program, the Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It gives you the day's top stories with context in just 15 minutes. Look for it in your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern every morning. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a sample of today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak at the very end of this podcast. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. With perspective, Sri Kochagavadan. Senior Research Economist at Aberdeen. Sri, I'm absolutely fascinated by how you link together the actions of Switzerland, Norway, and now the United Kingdom. Suddenly, is it a hawkish tone in Europe? I think this is clearly a hawkish tone from the UK and from, from Norway as well. Clearly, this you know they've surprised the markets. Norway this morning surprised with a 50. There were there was Running into this, there had been quite an intense debate. There were question marks about whether there would be a 25 or 50 basis points from the Bank of England, also for the Norway, Norway as well. But clearly, this is a surprise. And just running through the statement um, quickly, you know, the reasons are very clear. This is something that has been signaled, actually, within the speeches for some time. It is the core services inflation, which has been incredibly strong. Yesterday's data really did help trigger that debate about whether 25 or 50 would be necessary. Um, this is really um, a very, very strong picture for the UK. If you compare the UK for, with other developed markets and look at that wage number, it is really, an, really standing out with an increased um, wage pressures there, while other countries are starting to see a bit of a stabilization or a rollover. If you look at um, other European countries, yeah. if you look at the Fed um, or, or the US, the UK really stands out from that core services and wage pressures angle. We're watching the pound strengthen in response to this surprise 50 basis point rate hike from the <clears> United <throat> Kingdom, which is a departure from what we saw for the Liz Truss era. Sri, how much is this a positive sign that shows people believe that economies can withstand higher rates to a much greater degree than they thought just even six months ago? And then it really gives confidence that you can fight in, uh, inflation with higher rates without creating some sort of deep recession. I think that's going to be very challenging, to be perfectly honest. I think that. Um, you know, the fact that we've moved to 5%, markets are pricing in 6% the last time I looked earlier this morning. Um, this this is really triggering a recession. Now, monetary <clears throat> policy works with long and variable lags. That's something we often hear. And what we're seeing here is that, that we are, you know, monetary, uh, financial conditions have tightened significantly. Um, there is some question mark whether the Bank of England will raise as high as 6%. There's definitely further to go, potentially. But 6% will def would be triggering not just a recession, but a much more severe recession than economists are currently <clears throat> forecasting. Now, we do feel that the monetary tightening will trigger recessions in a number of different countries. I think a soft landing is very difficult. Um, and unemployment rates will are starting to nudge higher, but... The tightness in the labor market is very worrying in that right. the longer the recession is delayed, mm -hmm. the more severe we could see um, in terms of rate hikes and recession. Right. 
in a, in a, later on next year. Sri, inform our American audience, which we understand the dynamics of a fully employed Ohio or Kansas versus challenging city unemployment rates, perhaps in America. The perception we have is London booming, the South blooming. I'm thunderstruck at double-digit unemployment in Aberdeen, way up in the northeast of Scotland. How uneven is this debate on monetary policy across the United Kingdom? How much of the United Kingdom is truly in recession right now? I think there is a regional issue, and that's something that really needs fiscal uh, measures to, to really address. Now, from a monetary policy perspective, the Bank of England are limited to what's happening to the aggregate inflation rate, um, what is what is their target, and how do we get back to the target? So the regional divergences is very difficult to <clears throat> tackle without fiscal uh, measures and, and structural policies to, to target those issues. Now, um, if we think about... Uh, what's happening in terms of a recession. We're not quite in a recession yet. We've seen some weakness in data. Um, for Q2, we have a number of different drivers. We have strike action, mm-hmm. particularly in the healthcare services. Uh, we had uh, an extra bank holiday for the King's coronation. All of these um, issues will lead to some weakness in activity, but that's not, not necessarily a recession just yet. What the Bank of England need is for the economy to cool so that some of the imbalances um, that are driving inflation right. start to ease and you start to see more sustainable deceleration in that core services area. And we're not seeing that yet. Okay, Sri, thank you so much. Just really outstanding. Sri Kutcher governed with us with Aberdeen, this truly historic moment and gyrating moment for the United Kingdom. Terry Wiseman, global interest rates and currency strategist at Macquarie, joining us here. Terry, what do you make of that? The fact that you can find out what they're going to do, but you're not going to figure out what the market response is going to be. Look, I think it takes a long time to rebuild central bank credibility once it's been destroyed. It's not an overnight thing. Even with the replacement of the staff and and the decision makers there, it's going to take a while for, for a central bank that has avoided raising interest rates to gain the credibility of the market. The market's going to have, uh, they're, they're going to be doubters. And, and I think when you have a situation like this, it's important for the central bank to start to reassert its credibility by doing more than the market expects, not less than the market expects. I want to make a case that in those emerging markets that have tried to tackle the inflation story head on and early, you have seen a lot of success. Obviously, Turkey's not one of them. But look at Brazil. They're on the verge of starting to cut interest rates, perhaps as early as August or September. Same with the Chileans. These countries were aggressive in hiking rates during the inflation uh, uh, up move, and they're going to be early in cutting rates with the inflation down move that they're seeing in these countries. Turkey's an exception here. Okay, it's an exception. However, it's piling on the hawkish tilt that we've heard from central banks around the world today. The Bank of England, we've seen the fluctuation of the pound. Has the Bank of England lost credibility as well? I think it did, but I think that's exactly the reason why it had to raise by 50 basis points instead of 25. Now, granted, we did not expect that they were going to raise by 50. The tone coming out of the MPC members in their parliamentary testimony a few days ago did not signal a hike of 50 basis points. But at the same time, you had an inflation print since then, whereby implicitly you can make a case that the Bank of England had made a mistake. They thought that inflation was going to come in at about 8.3, 8.2%. In fact, it came in closer to 9%. I think it's because implicitly this 50 basis points is an admission of the mistake and a way to correct it. And I think that's why it happened. Alan Schwartz put this team together at Bear Stearns with your leadership, Emmy Shio and David Melpass driving the U.S. and global dialogue, John writing as well. Terry, you've seen this so many times before. How do you link, we rationalize idiosyncratic stories like Turkey or Argentina back to the central banker of the world, Jerome Powell? How do you link... Powell's actions to what we see unraveling here, there, and everywhere. I think we have to be very cautious if we're going to assume that what Jay Powell is going to do is going to be overly dependent on what other central banks do. And I think even the vice versa case is is pertinent as well. The situation in the U.S. is not the situation in the U.K., or for Mm -hmm. that matter, the situation in the Euro area. There is not as much labor activism and labor strikes in the U.S. I know that the headlines might be prominent, but we can measure this. And really, the peak of labor activism in the U.S. took place last summer. 
It has since died down. It makes plenty of sense. We've seen more layoff announcements in the U.S. The U.K. and Europe are very different. We're seeing a lot of labor activism now. We're seeing a lot of concessions by the private sector, even mm. governments, to these higher wage demands coming out of the workers. And as a result, the U.K. and Europe are delayed with regard to their ability to fight inflation and bring it down. Uh, if you look at some leading indicators of inflation in the U.S., they are clearly coming down and much faster than they are in Europe. The PPIs, for example, the survey-based uh, indexes that we're getting from the from the ISM services uh, survey, um, the Atlanta Fed's flexible price index, they're all pointing downward for inflation right. in the U.S. I have a feeling, and by the way, Powell even hinted at this uh, in his testimony yesterday, I have a feeling that in the back half of the year, you're going to finally see that so-called stickiness that we're seeing in the PCE uh, uh, inflation index and the CPI inflation index start to recede and come down. And by the way, I think the market understands that. And that's why the dollar has resumed being weak again, because it sees the Fed uh, coming to an end with its rate hikes. It doesn't see that yet in Europe right. or the UK. When we're going to the mid-year reviews, JP Morgan Publishing theirs this morning, and they call our disinflation path incomplete. But at Macquarie, one of your great studies has to be the greater number of lesser countries really struggling, as you just mentioned. Is the IMF going to come to the rescue here, or is the IMF lost credibility as we talk about the Bank of England challenged by credibility? Well, if you mean the IMF coming to the rescue with regard to the debt load in the emerging markets. To Argentina, peso 251, yeah. black market, I, 507. I, I, yeah, I don't think that you're going to see that happen unless these countries adopt a much more market-friendly and much more Washington consensus-based approach to the policy agenda. Uh, the IMF is not going to bail out countries that have made a succession of mistakes uh, in their political economy and their policy agenda over the last few years. It will bail out those countries that it can impose on an agreeable basis, a new plan of action with regard to fiscal responsibility and monetary policy responsibility. I want to go back to something you were talking about, that there does seem to be a real difference between the inflation dynamic in the U.S. and the inflation dynamic in Europe. And you were talking about the labor <coughs> dynamic in particular. Right now, what we're seeing are a number of central banks that paused or tried to and now are going back and hiking rates again. This is exactly what people do not want to see. What gives you confidence that the U.S. is not going to be in the exact same position with a stickier kind of inflation, especially driven by areas like the housing market that have shown incredible resilience to higher rates? Yeah, this is, these are all great questions. Let me start by saying that the way that the PEC uh, uh, price index is computed and are calculated and the way that the CPI inflation index is computed has inherent stickiness in it. About 40 to 50% of all the prices in that basket are imputed. So to get a really good sense of what flexible prices are doing, what prices are doing that, that are that you can actually observe in the marketplace, you have to look at narrower indexes. You have to look at only the basket of things for which we can observe prices. And when we do that, uh, we see a lot more disinflation already. Just compare, for example, that Atlanta Fed index, the flexible uh, 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 basket versus the sticky basket, has seen a huge divergence in the last few months. What is the potential shock to longer-term rates if this is somehow reversed, if somehow people are getting it wrong and inflation does remain stickier in the U.S. and follows the European story. Yeah. So if that's going to be the case, you're going to see the back end of the yield curve go up a little bit in the U.S. At the same time, it doesn't mean that the curve will get less inverted because we could see short uh, uh, term rates go up as well. I should say, however, but to the extent that we're going to see longer term rates go up, it's going to be because inflation break evens go up. It's going to be because that inflation expectation goes up not because real rates go up. Uh, but yeah, that would be effectively the, the result. Inflation, Long-term inflation expectations goes up, inflation break-evens go up, and that drags higher the 10-year yield in the U.S. We're linking monetary policy in here into the interests of Chairman uh, Powell. And you mentioned as we were going on air here that you had the immense privilege of seeing Jerry Garcia. I can't believe it's been 27 years since he died. That's the first shock. But you, you, had, you saw the dead when the dead was the dead and not the dead in company uh, now. And to parlay off this, I'm going to go to what a long, strange inflation this has been. What does a pandemic disinflation look like? This is an original inflation, isn't it? 
It's original only insofar as the Federal Reserve and a lot of central banks made the mistake of printing too much money at a time when they thought that the, that the pandemic would not end, or at least they took the risk management view that there's a possibility yeah. that the pandemic doesn't end, and therefore they erred on the side of inflation, of liquidity balances in the economy. The important thing to keep in mind is that those impulses that created the inflation in 2021 and early 2022 are more or less over and done with, with the possible exception of wage pressures in Europe. If you look at real monetary balances in the US, because of inflation and because of QT, they are back to trend level. They went up about 15 to 20% above the trend, and they've come down 20, 15 or 20% back to the trend. That's a very strong indication, a very strong suggestion that the inflationary impulse that the central banks had created is no longer uh, in play. It's no longer manifest. The longest dead concert, Terry was at the concert. He stood for six hours. The longest dead concert ever. Stood. Six hours. Okay. That's it's on the edge of Springsteen. <laughs> yeah, they have epic <clears throat> concerts, and evidently they used to have even more epic concerts as a uh, little Garcia older was. You know, Terry Weissman, thank you so much. My just pleasure, a perfect guys. Day, just perfect timing to have you in here with the challenges that we see in Turkey uh, today. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We turn to Michael Gapin, head of economics, Bank of America Securities. Michael, my head's spinning. There's so many trends going on here. And as Mike perfectly uh, encapsulated, the ambiguities of the moment are immense. What is the thing at the margin you're studying subject to change about American economics? What's the part of the story that interests you? I think the, the, there's two parts. One is what Lisa mentioned. How quickly can inflation come down even in an environment where the labor market is extremely tight, per Powell's words? So can we get further diminishment in goods prices, used car prices, shelter inflation? Same conversation we've been talking about for some time. But I think the mirror side of that coin, which Powell emphasized yesterday and we and others have been picking up on more, what is the, the big miss really this year has not come on inflation. It's come in the labor market where the labor force has rebounded extremely rapidly this year. Last year, the shortfall in, um, in the labor force from kind of pre-COVID projections was as high as 2 million and not falling. By our estimate, it's down to about 400,000 now. That means the, the probability of a softer landing or mild recession is, is higher, and the Fed doesn't have to lean on the labor market as much perhaps to bring inflation down. So it's that labor force rebound, from my perspective, that puts the Fed in a very different spot today than, than it was thinking it was in maybe six to nine months ago. Michael, how does Fed Chair Jay Powell draw this distinction at a time when his compatriots over uh, across the Atlantic are moving in the opposite direction and are facing resurgent inflation, exactly what they didn't want to see in a Burns-like kind of uh, situation? I think this is where one time you fall back on the U.S. is a large, <clears throat> relatively closed economy. We're less affected by global trends than is the case elsewhere. And we'll make the decisions on our policy outlook based on where the domestic economy is. The upside risk on inflation in the U.S. will come out of U.S. labor markets and, the, and whether there's persistent tightness in the labor market that keeps services inflation elevated. So I think you just kind of fall back 
on, on the historical tendencies of the U.S. to be much more domestically focused, services driven, and therefore, we're going to set our policy based on, on that evolution. The other aspect of the conversation is the fiscal side versus the monetary policy side. And people are talking a lot about the fiscal impulse of having to repay student loans again starting in October. We've been debating this for a couple of days and trying to figure out whether this is an overplayed risk or an underplayed risk. Do you think that the reinstatement of having to pay back your student debt after three years of a moratorium is going to have a material impact on both growth and inflation in the United States later this year? I think we would come down on the side that from a, a macro perspective, it's unlikely to have a material effect. It, it should probably dent the strength of spending in, say, September or October. But the magnitude of, of interest payments is maybe about two-tenths of one percent of personal income. If you fold in principal payments, it's closer to maybe half of one percent. So from the macro perspective, we, we doubt it has a material impact. Although certainly at the individual level, it may affect behavior quite a lot. It just doesn't, we don't think it adds up to something uh, macro systemic, if, if you will. So it's probably more about credit markets and, and the behavior of, 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 of those as opposed to the macro economy more broadly. What does uh, Bank of America see, Michael Gapin, in your immense ability to tap knowledge on the American consumer? And I want to get granular here. Through the month of June... Is there any indication of a slowdown of the American consumer? Yeah, there is, Tom. There, there is, and our, our, our B of A card data would suggest that consumer spending continues <clears throat> to slow, but at a, at a moderate pace. And when we dig into those details, we do find that you know some of the, the revenge spending categories are starting to show softness. So airlines and, and lodging, which were really strong last year, those things have started to, to moderate. But spending on entertainment and recreation, that is still strong. It maps into what we're seeing in the labor market where two-thirds of your gains in private sector employment are, are still coming from areas like leisure and hospitality and education and health. So there's still some catch-up spending leading probably to follow-through in hiring. But on the margin, it, it does suggest that spending, spending is, is moderating. It's, it's about flat. Uh, on a year-on-year -year basis and in some categories moving slightly negative. Michael, I have to say I'm hearing all of the noise behind you and I'm thinking to myself, a lot of people are back in the office and how different this <clears throat> is than what we have heard for so many years. Is that your experience, that this has actually uh, been this sort of sea change or reversion and the whole like work-from-home trend has kind of died out? I, don't, I mean, I think that's very industry-specific uh, and probably job requirement-specific where you know, I'm in at least four days a week. Uh, sales and trading here uh, is, is in five days a week. So certain roles are definitely back in, in the office. I, I see it on my regular commute is, as well. So and certainly Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, or sorry, Tuesday, <coughs> Wednesday and Thursday are your big peak days. So yeah, there's kind of three out of the five days it, it's feeling quote normal. Uh, and then it kind of tapers off as I the can, week goes on. You know, Friday at Bank of America, Moynihan's out at the summer place, Gapin's in with shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's a celebration of the fifth A scary thought. Michael Gapin, thank you so much with Bank of America. Everyone I talk to, there is only one destination. And it is Paris. It is stunning anecdotally to see the number of people migrating to France. Leading the way is Francine Lacroix from London at an important conference of Mr. Macron on climate and on the funding for poorer nations. She is in conversation with the tour director for Paris. He's on the bus telling us about the highlights. Bruno Le Maire, tour director this summer. Francine? Tom, you couldn't be more right, actually. I have to say, everyone's here in Paris, not only because we have 30 heads of state here at uh, talking about finance and sustainability and how to tackle poverty, uh, which is very, really spearheaded by the president of France, but also there was Fashion Week, and it does seem that every American, um, actually, in Europe has decided to descend on Paris. So congratulations, first of all, on creating so much buzz, not only Thank around you. some important tackles, but actually Paris is buzzing. A little bit rainy today, but it, you know, it's, it's back with a vengeance. What are you trying to achieve at this conference? Are we talking about money transfer, debt forgiveness, or keeping the momentum to really try and do a new Bretton Woods agreement? I think the key purpose is uh, to um, keep the momentum 
and to have a new financial architecture for uh, the poorest countries of the world. With President Macron, we don't want the poorest countries in the world to be confronted to a choice between fighting against extreme poverty and fighting against climate change. We want to provide all the financial means for those countries to be efficient in the fight against poverty and in the fight against climate change. This is the key purpose of this summit, and I think that the key point, the key purpose, would be to define a new financial architecture for the 21st century. Minister, are you frustrated that it's taking this much time? I know the Chinese Premier is here, which is a great coup because we haven't actually seen U.S. officials and Chinese officials at this high level in a room together talking about these these issues, but you've tried to push also voting rights in the IMF. How's that going? Big things need a long time, so I'm not frustrated. I think that we are totally, totally determined with President Macron to have a final positive outcome for this summit. Uh, I think that we are moving in the right direction as far as debt restructuring is concerned. We want to move faster, we want to move quicker. Uh, I think that we could have a positive outcome as far as the debt of Zambia and Sri Lanka is concerned. It is really quite good news to have the Chinese Prime Minister here in Paris today talking with all the head of states, talking with the Secretary Janet Yellen. This is really, I think, a very positive outcome. We also have the new president of the World Bank and we are defining a new role for the multilateral development banks, providing more money for the poorest countries. So really things are moving on the right direction and the final outcome must be positive. Minister, I imagine that in the corridors they talk about trade, they talk about the fact that Secretary Blinken was in China, the fact that we have President Xi with a rapprochement with the US. What does this mean for global I think it's good news because um, we all want to improve the relationship between the three uh, continents, between China, the US, Europe. Uh, we are totally determined to defend our own economic interests in Europe. You know that the new principle, which is now at the core of the European future, has been defined by President Macron, and it is sovereignty. Sovereignty means that we want to defend our uh, technological assets, our economic interests, while talking with China, but being aware that there is a necessity to uh, really have all the necessary tools to defend our economic interests. But, Minister, given the high inflation, interest rates rising, I mean, the economy is extremely complex. Do we need to attract, in Europe and in France specifically, more Chinese investments? Yes, we are open to Chinese uh, investments uh, in France. Uh, we uh, had yesterday a very uh, fruitful discussion between uh, Prime Minister of the Chinese Republic and the key CEOs of the French economy. And we made very clear that uh, if there is any willingness of the Chinese government to invest more uh, in France and more in uh, Europe, for instance, on the uh, EVs, on the uh, electric batteries, uh, we are welcoming those investments. I mean, we have a lot of US viewers at this time in the day. Would they worry that actually that investment that could have gone to the US is going elsewhere, including Europe? Oh, I think that, you know, climate change means a lot of new investments in green hydrogen, in batteries, in EVs, and so on, solar panels. So there is place for everybody. We should just be very uh, cautious in the way we are defending our uh, technological assets and our technologies, or key technologies. But uh, anyway, the fight against climate change will pave the way for new investments and new innovations. And this is a very good thing that we have fruitful talks and constructive talks between the US, the EU, and China. Minister, how difficult is it to be in charge of finances of a country at a time where interest rates are going up, inflation, of course, is going up, which leads to higher interest rates, but at the same time, you need to do economies because of huge deficits across the world. It's a kind of uh, fine-tuning, I would say, which means that... Not a juggling all, act? Yeah, no, <laughs> just a fine-tuning, which means that's the, the key priority is to get rid of inflation and uh, to bring the prices down. This is the key priority for the household, of course. Then you have to take into account the necessity to come back to sound public finances. I just announced last Monday that we would cut in public expenses by 10 billion euros at least for next 2024. 
So this means that we are totally determined to come back to sound public finances and to stick to the path of reforms. We just introduced two key reforms, the uh, reform of the labor market and, of course, the pension reform. But given what we heard from the Fed and other central banks, do you not worry that interest rate hikes will be so severe that they'll almost have to crush economies or at least put them in a recession to achieve their inflation target? That's why it's so important to keep a high level of investments and a high level of innovation. If you want to avoid recession, you have to find the right balance between coming back to some public finances and keeping a high level of investments in the fight against climate change and, of course, in defense, since uh, we have war back uh, on the European soil. This is this balance that we want to preserve. You know that we are in the process of defining the new rules for the European countries, the Stability and Growth Pact. We want those new rules to keep the right balance between investments and some public finances. Do they need to be more flexible? We need flexibility, of course. We need rules. We need uh, all the countries to abide by the rules. But let's be very clear. The key factor for the 21st century for Europe is to keep a high level of investment in innovation. Minister, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Thank that you. was Bruno Le Maire, the French finance minister. And with that, Tom, I'm going to hand it back to you in New York. And we miss you in Paris. Uh, Francine, thanks so much. We wish we were here. Lisa and I, John's on an Italian island somewhere. We don't care about what he thinks uh, right now. But Francine Lacroix, thank you so much. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Prime Minister of Ukraine is the most interesting guy with many different public duties over the years, but all working around trade and the economy of a pre-war and at present war in Ukraine. In London, our Maria Tadeo in conversation with Denis Shmihal. Tom, good morning. And we are joined by Ukraine's Prime Minister, Mr. Michal. Thank you so much for being with us. We've seen each other in many conferences like this multiple times. And I know how difficult it is for you to get here. It's this train from Ukraine, very big country, over to Poland, and then a lot of security concerns about your staff, your team, yourself. So we appreciate your time. And one of the things that you always tell me is when I come to a recovery conference like this, and there's been many, I do feel our allies say we stand with Ukraine and they mean it. But a war is long. It's expensive. Did you feel any fatigue in this runaround? Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you and morning. Uh, so it's second uh, conference for Ukrainian recovery. The first one uh, was held in Switzerland one year ago. Today we are in London. 62 countries and international organizations are here. Uh, hundreds of businesses are here, international businesses. Uh, we feel tremendous support from all of our partners. We feel financial support, sanctional, military support, humanitarian support. Uh, results of this conference uh, have a long-term consequences. We have many promises. We have many concrete agreements, declarations, memorandums. We have financial support. Uh, we have middle-term program uh, for Ukrainian support from European Commission, from European Union for 50 billion euro for the next four years. We have tremendous support from United Kingdom. 
We have very good meetings with our partners and with uh, United States Secretary of State. We have very good uh, conversations, negotiations and very good results. And yet, while all of this is happening, we know that back home the fighting continues and the counteroffensive is going. And I do want to make something very clear. Was there at any point in this conference, did you get any hint that anyone suggested the funding will depend on the counteroffensive. Absolutely no. If it's successful, more money. If it's not, it would be less. No one told you that. We have very, very sustainable, very strong and very uh, unwavering support from our partners. Uh, there is no dependence from results on the battlefield. They are entirely so, different. Absolutely. We have very strong messages, uh, especially on that conference. Ukraine is future member of EU. Ukraine will be supported by partners. Russia must pay because of this consequences of this war, of terrible war and aggression from Russia's side. So these messages from partners are very supportive, are very promising. And now we continue our counteroffensive. This is not easy walk. This is not Hollywood movie, as our president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said yesterday. Yesterday, he seemed a little bit exasperated. This is not a movie. It, it takes time. It takes patience. Absolutely. Is that what you feel at times, too? This uh, is not Hollywood. It's, it's, it's real people and, and it's lives. Yes. And uh, every life uh, is very important for us. And uh, we are not Russia. We are not Soviet-style army uh, when they uh, bring their lives to the fire of the war. So we are very careful, we are very smart, we use NATO standards in this war because we are fighting according to NATO standards, we are fighting for weaponry of NATO countries and uh, counteroffensive it's multiple operation, mm -hmm. it's offensive, it's defensive operations, it's uh, tactical pauses, so it will take time, but we have first results. It's too early to make an assessment, Absolutely. Now, that's what you say. We have first results of our counteroffensive. Eight villages are liberated, more than one 113 square kilometers is liberated. Seven kilometers uh, go uh, into the head from the front line. So it's very important results for the two weeks, and we will continue. And, and sir, of course, uh, now you have, uh, you're on Bloomberg TV, of course, you have the investment community that's watching this interview, but you also have a lot of taxpayers, some of whom are very sympathetic to Ukraine too, but they say we want to see value for money, but also this idea of corruption at times. I remember President Zelensky said, my government will crush the oligarchs. We will be a before and after moment in Ukraine. Is that the moment or the message that you're sending to people? Things are changing in Ukraine. Ukraine is changing, absolutely. Uh, president, our government, we have zero tolerance to the corruption. You will ditch people that are corrupted we if you finished, find anyone. We finished formation and creation of our anti-corruptional mm -hmm. infrastructure together with our partners. We are absolutely transparent, accountable and open. And this anti-corruptional infrastructure is working now and we demonstrate to all the world that we are uh, fighting with a corruption country. And we will have results. Uh, we continue our reforms, we continue digitalization, we take off state and public services from uh, persons and go to the digital uh, space. And this is very, very effective way to fight corruption. Just don't let uh, people to be corrupted because digitalization brings new technologies and new possibilities. And can I ask you your meeting with uh, Mr. Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State? He was uh, here and I know you had a one-to-one -one meeting. There's an election coming up in the United States. Is that something that worries you or did he tell you the United States is, is in for the long haul? This is about values for the U.S.? United States is very important partner, uh, is the biggest supporter yes. for Ukraine. So we discussed all the important issues. We discussed, first of all, financial support. And uh, Mr. Blinken announced the next $1.3 billion support, financial support for Ukraine, for our reforms, for our recovery, for our energy sector. It's very important for us. We also discussed all other issues, very important uh, in, in sense of development of my country, despite the war, demining activity, uh, sanctions against Russia, uh, development of energy sector in Ukraine and other many other very important issues. So the meeting we are... went well. And, and I also wonder, however, with the average uh, American that may be watching this too and is thinking, but Ukraine is a far way off. I've, I don't know anything about this country. Uh, what's going on there with my money? What, what's your message? Uh, uh, what would you say? We Stay with very... us because what? First of all, 
we are very grateful to American people, to United mm -hmm. Kingdom uh, people, to all our partners who support us military, financially, by sanctions. It's crucially important because we are fighting not only for our land, for our families, for our people. We are fighting for democratic and for civilized values. It's crucial. And because of this, all democratic world support Ukraine. Why? Because this is about global security uh, system. And it's very important, don't let any aggressor to have a free uh, thinking about future possible aggression. If, if Russia were to win this, and it's a hypothetical, then would you say it would be the moral collapse of the West? If we let that happen, it would be the moral collapse of the West? Um, I think that... You don't even contemplate Russia winning. It's impossible. It's impossible, and I think that uh, I'm sure that civilized world will mm. not let Russia win this war, because it's about existential things. It's about the world security system. And uh, from my side, I should say that Ukrainians have no intention, no imagination that we may lose this war, because it's about our existence. It's war uh, uh, with war crimes, with mm -hmm. war against humanity, with genocide against Ukrainian nation. So if Russia will win this war, it, it will mean that Ukraine and Ukrainian nation, nation is not exist anymore. So from our side, we understand that we will liberate our country in the borders as on the 1991. And it is existential. That's a word I heard the most the last time I was in Ukraine, that this was existential for the country now. And I want to ask you, however, another existential question perhaps is the NATO summit. You said in this conference, for a strong economy, you need a strong country, and that means security, what's going to happen in that meeting? President Zelensky said, my people have shed blood for a timeline now to NATO. What's going to happen in a month's time in that meeting? I may repeat, we are fighting according to NATO standards. We are fighting by weaponry of NATO. So why is it so, so scary in fact, for some? In fact, our army is NATO army mm -hmm. right now. We are fighting for the same principles for which NATO was created. So. Uh, I'm sure that membership of Ukraine in NATO, it will be a very win-win situation, very uh, mutually beneficial situation. So uh, we are waiting so that this summit in Vilnius will be a very strong summit and we will hear very concrete and very strong messages about Ukrainian membership in NATO. And we hope that partners will do this. We have 20, uh, 20 allies which are, support, which are supporting Ukraine, which signed For a uh, path some to uh, declarations. Uh, we discussed with some skeptical allies, yes. but uh, we have uh, sure inside of our hearts that everything will be good. And, and very briefly, sometimes you hear people say, just sit down and talk to Vladimir Putin. When you hear the name Vladimir Putin, does it trigger anything in you or you just go, this is in the past, I'm not interested in Vladimir Putin? Putin is the biggest crimer uh, of our times, of 21st century. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't believe that he may do something to bring peace in Ukraine. So only one his step to stop shut and take off uh, Russian army from Ukrainian territory may stop this war and bring peace back on the European continent. But he has this possibility since uh, 214. So... We understand that this is now impossible. And for you, it's, you say it's now impossible. It's too late. Prime Minister, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Always very good to see you in Bloomberg. And thank you for being here with us in London. Thanks. Thank you so much. Tom. Maria Tadeo, thank you so much for a piercing conversation ending with comments of Ukraine on the leader of Russia. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Now stay tuned for today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. It's your daily news podcast delivering today's top stories to your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern. It's all the news you need in just 15 minutes. The Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It starts right now. 
the Bloomberg Interactive Burger Studios. This is Bloomberg Daybreak for Thursday, June 22nd. Coming up today. Crews race to find the missing sub near the Titanic before the air runs out. The U.S. and India strengthen military and economic ties. Rates in focus as Jay Powell appears before Congress again and the Bank of England makes a policy decision. And we bring you an exclusive interview with the CEO of Deutsche Bank. New York Mayor Adams announces new guidelines after lithium-ion battery fires, plus a New York City board votes for increases in rent-stabilized apartments. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead. I'm John Stash, Howard Sports. The Yankees hit three home runs and a win over Seattle. The Mets lost in Houston. The NBA draft takes place tonight in Brooklyn. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak, the business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Here are the stories we're following today. First, we want to keep you updated on the search for that missing submersible near the Titanic. Crews from around the world are zeroing in on underwater noises detected over the past two days. Former Coast Guard Commandant Thad Allen says filtering out the signal from the noise is a tough task. There's animal life. There are other noises that are out there. There are ships operating in the area. So the question is how to localize it and try and understand what it is. Former Coast Guard Commandant Thad Allen says the situation is growing more desperate for the five people on board the Titan. The vessel left Sunday with about 96 hours of air. At this point, they may have just a couple of hours left. Well, Nathan, we turn to geopolitics now. At an important moment in the U.S. relationship with India, President Biden is hosting India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi for his first ever state visit to the White House. Senior U.S. officials say the two leaders will announce a series of defense and commercial deals aimed at improving military and economic ties. They'll also hold a brief joint news conference, a rarity for the Indian leader, before Modi addresses Congress this afternoon. I mean, I'm in Florida, Karen. The federal government's case against Donald Trump is moving forward. Prosecutors are now turning over evidence to the former president's legal team. Amy Morris has details from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Evidence is being handed over to the defense as both sides get ready for the August 14th trial date, including grand jury testimony of witnesses set to testify at trial, a 2021 recording of the former president discussing having classified information, other public statements made by Trump, an FBI interview of Trump's personal aide and co-defendant, and pictures of boxes of records at Mar-a-Lago. Both sides are prevented from publicly sharing the evidence that's been turned over, and Trump's attorneys are working on getting security clearances to review any classified material. In Washington, I'm Amy Morris, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Amy, thank you. Well, elsewhere in Washington, the House has voted to censure Adam Schiff. Lawmakers voted along party lines to censure the California Democrat over comments made during investigations into Donald Trump's ties to Russia. Schiff was defiant ahead of the vote, calling out House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy would spend the nation's time on petty political payback, thinking he can censure or find Trump's opposition into submission. But I will not yield. Not one inch. Adam Schiff becomes the 25th House lawmaker to be censured. He was the lead prosecutor in former President Trump's first impeachment trial. Karen, let's turn from politics now to financial markets. Jay Powell is back in focus as the Fed chair prepares for day two of congressional testimony. Yesterday, Powell told the House Financial Services Committee more interest rate hikes are on the way. Almost every single of the 16 of the 18 participants on the FOMC wrote down that they they do believe it'll be appropriate to raise rates, and and a big majority believes raise rates twice this year. And, you know, I think that's a pretty good guess of what will happen if the economy performs about as expected. Powell's comments come after the Fed paused rate hikes last week for the first time in 15 months. Well, Nathan, not all Fed officials are on board for more rate increases. Atlanta Fed Bank President Raphael Bostic says he supports holding at the current level for the rest of this year. We get more from Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet. Bostic says it is prudent to give time for inflation to ease in response to past moves. In an online commentary, Bostic said, quote, letting restrictive policy work for a while is prudent because the policy has been truly restrictive for less than a year and it takes time for monetary policy changes to meaningfully influence economic activity. In a later Yahoo Finance interview, Bostic said, quote, my baseline is that we should stay at this level for the rest of the year. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Daybreak. 
Thank you, Charlie. Central banks are also in focus overseas this morning. The Bank of England is expected to raise rates again today, and we get the details from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts in London. Central banks were meant to get boring this summer, but Britain's red-hot inflation may force the Bank of England to press hard on the brakes today. Economists and investors expect the Monetary Policy Committee to push ahead with another quarter-point increase in the base rate to 4.75%, what would be the 13th rise in the hiking cycle. But core inflation at a 31-year high means money markets now place a 40% chance on a bigger half-point increase. It's an anxious backdrop to a mortgage market which has already seen soaring rates this month. In London, I'm Ewan Potts, Bloomberg Daybreak. All right, Ewan, thanks. So we have some other central bank decisions in Europe to tell you about this morning. Switzerland hiked rates by 25 basis points, and that amounts to the smallest increase since the SNB started tightening policy last year. And Norway went even farther, hiking rates by 50 basis points. That's the largest increase since the central bank's current tightening cycle. Staying in Europe, Karen, Deutsche Bank's CEO is out with an optimistic outlook. Christian Savings says he expects trading results to improve in the second half as clients navigate a complex and challenging economy. Speaking exclusively to Bloomberg, the Deutsche Bank CEO said there are also challenges facing the business. With regard to uh, the investment bank, um, we always said that uh, we had a record year. Um, We had an extraordinary strong year in the FIC business in 2022. I still think that actually in Q1 and Q2 we have done well, but the overall market uh, is is a bit weaker than in the record year of 2022. And again, that was Deutsche Bank CEO Christian Saving speaking exclusively with Bloomberg. Stay tuned for more of that conversation coming up shortly. And for that look at other stories making news in New York and around the world, we are joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nathan. A deadly tornado hit a small town in northwest Texas last night, leaving significant damage in its wake. The mayor of Matadores says at least three people had been killed in the storm, which also damaged and destroyed homes and businesses. The dangerous heat wave across the south has turned deadly. The U.S. Postal Service confirmed a letter carrier in Dallas, Texas, died while delivering mail in the heat. Multiple cities are shattering all-time heat records. South of Houston, crews are racing to repair roads that buckled under the heat. Texas Department of Transportation spokesman Danny Perez says worker safety is being monitored closely. Making sure they're staying hydrated, making sure that they're aware of their situation, making sure that they're not staying out longer than they need to. Near Corpus Christi, it felt like 127 degrees. Tenants in New York City's roughly 1 million rent stabilized apartments will face increases of 3% for one-year leases after a tense meeting filled with protesters. The city's Rent Guidelines Board also voted yesterday for two-year leases. Rents will increase 2.75% in the first year and an additional 3.2% in the second year. The rents are expected to increase October 1st. Another lithium-ion battery fire in New York. At least two people were hurt in the blaze last night in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. The fire that was quickly extinguished comes just hours after Mayor Eric Adams says that New York is taking action after four people were killed from a fire and an e-bike repair shop in Manhattan earlier this week. Adams announced a new action plan to speed up investigations about potentially hazardous conditions involving lithium-ion batteries and bike shops. We need real action, not only on the state level, but on the federal level. There have been over 108 lithium-ion-related battery fires in this city this year alone. Mayor Adams also announced an outreach and education campaign aimed at shop owners about the dangers regarding the batteries. The New York State Legislature has passed a bill to protect abortion providers against being sued from states where the practice is banned. The bill would legally protect doctors ensuring medical providers in the state will be able to provide telehealth services to patients who do not live in New York. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Bard. This is Bloomberg. Nathan. Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update. Good morning, John Stanshower. Good morning, Nathan. The Yankees, of course, had some big-name, high-priced guys. They were not the ones that led them to victory at the stadium. Johnny Brito got the start. Up from the minors, he pitched into the sixth inning, did not allow a run, gave up just two hits. Yanks had only five hits, but three of them left the yard. Here's the payoff. He's not running, and the pitch is swung on and hit in the air to deep right. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. 
It's a two-run home run by the Yankee of ours. And that's Jake Bowers. And sixth home run for Bowers, Billy McKinney, another left-handed hitting outfielder, just up from Scranton, hit his second as many nights, and later the tenth of the season for the rookie Anthony Volpe. Yankees beat the Mariners 4-2, and they go for the sweep tonight. The Mets lost in Houston 10-8. This game was 9-6, still in the fourth inning. Tyler McGill gave up five runs. Anthony Leone followed, got only four outs, gave up four more runs in defeat. 23rd home run for Pete Alonzo, but the Mets have now lost 13 of their last 17. Cincinnati has won all of its last 11. The Reds' longest winning streak in 66 years, and the Giants won again. They've won their last 10. Big NBA trade just ahead of tonight's draft that takes place at the Barclays Center. Three-team deal saw the Celtics acquire the ex-Nick Kristaps Porzingis coming in from Washington. It cost them Marcus Smart, a Celtic for nine years. Two seasons ago, the NBA's top defensive player, he goes to Memphis. The draft will begin with San Antonio taking Victor Wembenyama, the French phenom. The Nets have back-to-back picks in the first round, 21st and 22nd. The Knicks have stockpiled picks in later years, but tonight, barring a trade, the Knicks will not have a pick. John Stash Network, Bloomberg Sports. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business app, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. There's momentum in the business. So says Deutsche Bank CEO Christian Saving. And while he warns of a decline in trading revenue this quarter, he expects results to improve in the second half, pointing to clients currently navigating a complex and challenging economy. Christian Saving sat down for an exclusive interview with Bloomberg's Guy Johnson. Let's listen into that conversation now. The macro uncertainty that has driven markets so much recently. Do you get the feeling that that is beginning to recede? Do you get the impression that you are increasingly on more solid ground? Well, first of all, I think we we all have to admit that um, if you look what has happened over the last 12 to 15 months in in the macro um, on the geopolitical side, I think uh, economies have really shown how resilient they are. Um, Because uh, a year ago, a lot of people would have uh, uh, said there is a Um, quite material recession in Europe, in Germany, uh, potentially also in the US. And if we now look back, I I think we we see that uh, the answer we have given um, is is actually showing that we fared quite well uh, over the last 12 to 15 months. Now, I think the situation remains complex. Um, uh, I I do believe that with a very persistent inflation, interest will further go up on both sides of the the ocean. And I also do believe, Guy, that um, the interest will then stay a little bit longer elevated than potentially a lot of people think. And that means that um, I still believe that there is a, a chance of a mild recession in the U.S. Um, at the end of uh, 23, early 24, as well as in Europe. You see that uh, Germany is uh, in a technical recession, has been in a technical recession. So um, I don't... I don't believe that we will see a material recession, but I do think that uh, uncertainty still prevails and and hence um, we need to watch out. And the second half of 2023 is for sure um, a half which uh, um, is still complex and is still challenging. So does that mean that the, the Q2 guidance that your CFO gave a few days back was just a was just a blip. He was talking about uh, fixed income being down 15 to 20 percent. You talk about the fact that the second half is going to see significant uncertainty. That's a good environment for fixed income. So therefore, was the Q2 guidance just a blip? And do you still believe that the full year numbers are going to be better than the numbers that James gave? Well, let's start with the overall bank, and, and there we see a good momentum. Um, that is the strategy of Deutsche Bank, that we says we need a more balanced bank. That was exactly what yep. we wanted to achieve in 2019 when we called out the transformation of Deutsche Bank. And we see the results. We have a very strong corporate bank, um, a very nice uh, developing private bank. And therefore, we can confirm our 28 to 29 billion of revenues for this year. Um, we see the momentum. We see a Q2, uh, to be honest, uh, Q2 2023 from a revenue point of view, which is uh, uh, higher than Q2 uh, 2022. So overall, I would say um, this bank is uh, is faring well. Um, the strategy is paying off. With regard to uh, the investment bank, um, we always said that 
uh, we had a record year. Um, we had an extraordinary strong year in the FIC business in 2022. I still think that actually in Q1 and Q2 we have done well, but the overall market uh, is, is a bit weaker than yep. in the record year of 2022. But I do believe with some uncertainties, for instance, the debt ceiling issue going away uh, in the yep. US, then with the still complex situation which is in front of us, um, I do believe that um, um, in Q3 and Q4 um, there is momentum in the business on the fixed side. But for us as a strategy of Deutsche Bank, it is important that we further balance out the investment bank overall. We have a very strong thick business. We have a very strong DCM business. Yep. What we really wanted to achieve is that also the O&A business is further strengthened. Yep. And hence, we've put a lot of investments into that. So just to, just to wrap this part of the conversation up, it, it is going to be, it, it's going to be an operating environment for the FIC business that is likely to be less good than, next year, than last year. Um, Q2 may or may not be a blip. You still see uncertainty in the second half of the year, which could provide opportunity. So, so on balance, the numbers are likely to be slightly better than the 15 to 20% that James guided to. That's, that's what I would say for uh, um, the coming months and weeks. Uh, again, Q2 was also a particular quarter, yep. given the situation also which we had in the US. We can already see also now in June um, on the most recent days that there is, a, um, that there is momentum in the business. So um, I'm, I'm overall actually quite comfortable also with the FIG business. And, and again, Q2 was a particular uh, quarter. I would say that uh, um, the FIG business in Q3 and Q4 I think there was uh, a slight recovery. You are very good at keeping secrets. <laughs> um, let's talk about the Numis acquisition. It, it, for those of us that follow the bank, it caught us all by surprise. I understand you've been working on it for quite some time, but it definitely caught us by surprise. Um, was the offer just too good to refuse? Was the price just too good to refuse? Where did it come from? Where did, where did your decision to go in this direction, the advisory business, come from? Well, I, I just said it in, uh, in, in, in my previous answer. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer and the whole management team of Deutsche Bank is a big believer that we need balanced business, not only for the overall bank. That was the reason why we did the transformation four years ago. Yep. Stable, well-balanced setup with four businesses. In each of those business, I again want to be balanced. And we have a very strong FIC and DCM business. Where we wanted to further invest is in the ONA business. And, you know, we looked at Numis for a long, long time. And, and yes, we kept the secret quite well. And we think it's an optimal um, addition to our business mix and to our offerings in Europe and in particular in the UK. The UK is from a fee market pool. Um, it's uh, uh, the most lucrative uh, European market. Um, we are adding 170 top corporate clients and it fits beautifully to our global house bank concept. Everybody is only thinking about the investment banking offering. And yes, that's obviously something we are very much interested in and it fits to our existing uh, positioning in the UK. But we have a really well-functioning corporate bank. So we have 170 additional clients yep. with Numis now and we can offer our corporate banking products and at the same time, we have a private bank where I think we can also do the one or the other thing. So the overall global house bank concept yep. is fitting very well to Numis. And therefore, we, we looked at it very carefully. I'm very glad about the job Fabrizio and the team have done. Um, and now we concluded this and now we need to uh, make the final steps, right? Are you keeping more secrets from me? Are, are there, <laughs> you talk about the other divisions and the fact that you want to, you want to have balance. Are there other deals in the offering? If another great opportunity came along, are you still interested or, or is the dry powder gone? No, I would say, look, um, I think we are very careful and cautious uh, uh, planning um, team. But of course, we always said that after restructuring and positioning this bank, we are up for growth. And we always said we want to grow in more capital-like products, uh, which is, for instance, the O&A business and yep. the M&A business and the advisory business. But you have also seen that we have done um, senior hires, again, in corporate finance, but also in the wealth management business. Yeah. So we think that we can further balance out the business at some point in time over two, three yeah. years. Um, you know, we want to also and we, we need to plan for a situation that NII is at some point in time, again, coming down. 
we need then additional income streams and this bank is planning for that and is investing for that right now. And hence, uh, um, uh, A, I wouldn't tell you about secrets uh, because you just <laughs> said we are good at it, at keeping it, but that there is a clear growth strategy in parts like wealth management, yep. origination and advisory. Yes, um, uh, we are focusing on that. And with the recent hires, we've seen that. You, you talk about hires in the, on the wealth side, though. Do, do you see the growth there being organic? Do you see it being via acquisition of talent rather than acquisition of businesses? Well, it's, it's, it's both, but um, I do believe that uh, we have now such a nice positioning um, and, and, and uh, such a nice structure that we really do believe that um, if you have a chance to acquire and, and get um, good and great talent um, uh, in, in all kinds of regions, this is a really good way in step-by-step -step growing your business. Um, Claudio de Sanctis has done that uh, very successfully in Asia, yep. um, in other parts of uh, Southern Europe. So that is a, a first way of growing. If Commerzbank ever came back, would you be interested in that acquisition? They have got a huge deposit base, which in this environment is hugely attractive. Well, we also have a huge uh, deposit sure. base. Uh, but put with, the two together, uh, with, uh, it would be even bigger. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think we have shown also during the recent volatilities in the market how firm and how stable our deposit base is. So that is not a reason uh, uh, to actually think about uh, further enlarging it or acquiring uh, somebody else. I think the full focus of Deutsche Bank is in um, now after successfully delivering the transformation over the last three or four years is now growing uh, into an area where we have a return on equity of uh, larger than 10% in yep. 2025. We are on a good way of achieving that. The first quarter of 2023 has clearly shown the strengths of Deutsche Bank and we can control it by ourselves. We can achieve that by ourselves and uh, that is our focus. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed at 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Karen Moscow. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.